text for today is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people who sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. The Corinthian church, we had seen through several examples, had grown to be called what Paul says, puffed up in their pride. Now, they're in a unique situation. They have all kinds of gifts. They have an apostle as their teacher. Uh, They think that they have inherited in the gospel, some sort of superiority, maybe to the Jews, we're going to see in a minute, maybe to other congregations or other leaders. And a lot of what's plaguing them is simply a sense of pride, or what you might can call a sense of presumption. Presumption is kind of a unique thing. It's the main thing that we're looking at today in that it presumes upon God's grace. The name of this series is Life under grace. And grace had come to the Corinthians. God loves the Corinthians. And he poured out his mercy upon him and poured out his grace. And yet what's easy to do for Corinthians, for Israelites, for all of us, is to take the grace of God and to presume upon it, to act arrogantly upon it. And by doing so, we, we, we really miss the heart of the gospel. We miss God because we're presuming upon the grace. Let me give you an example of what I mean. As a thesis statement, chapter 10, it said this in verse 12, let, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, pay attention, lest you fall lest you presume upon this grace. It's it's literally the tale as old as time cycled throughout the scriptures. In the garden, with all of the freedom and innocence that Adam and Eve enjoyed and all of the grace that they had in perfect relationship with God, they still fell prey to presumption. 
that God could, in fact, be mocked. That God could, in fact, be distrusted. That his word could be violated. And that nothing would happen, nothing would change. Did God really say? (laughs) He did. He really did say. So Paul's been navigating Christian freedom with the Corinthians. What is this freedom that they have? And in many ways, he's helping them navigate this to use their freedom rightly, to understand that their position before God, um, uh, that they were not made righteous by things that they ate or things that they wore or relationships that they had. And he's also helping them to take this freedom that they have, because it was just given to them in grace, and he's teaching them to lay it down, legitimate freedom though they are, for the sake of others. But in this text, he's stretching them even further by issuing a warning to all those who are free. If you're in this room and you are in Christ, this text has a word for you as well. God has given his grace. And as those who stand under it in life under grace, what does it mean? What does it mean to have freedom here? Well, it was precisely that, their life under grace. To those who have been gifted lavish mercy by Christ, well, they're called not to presume upon it. To not let their liberty give way to license. You can hear Paul say this explicitly. He's getting himself sort of worked up in Romans. He's preaching the high grace of God. And as soon as he gets to chapter 6, what does he say? He says, should we just sin so that grace can abound? And God is just so gracious. I mean, should we just add some sin so we can just get more grace? Brothers, by no means, don't presume upon God. Don't presume upon God's mercy. Don't take these these amazing gifts and then treat them so lightly by dealing with sin so flippantly. Take warning because in your freedom, freedom can almost make a blinder on your eyes. And you can begin to treat God lightly. This was possible for even Adam and Eve to do. And as an illustration to the point he's making with the Corinthians, Paul reminds them of what happened to the Israelites after the Exodus. For the Corinthians, they might have thought that they were better off than the Israelites because they had things like communion and baptism. Paul reminds them that they were not unique to the Corinthians. It did not make them superior. And for us too, in the present day, who have been redeemed by Christ, it's easy to presume that is to act arrogantly upon God's mercy. So the exercise of seeing yourself through the lens of a story is repeated so many times in Scripture, from anecdotes to epistles and parables. We are told to pause, look back at this story, and remember. You're not that unique. You need to remember. It's right to replace in the narrative of our forefathers to see where we fit in. Because we are often the wicked stepmother, but we can't see it until we're placed into the story, until we have new eyes. If I were Adam, of course I wouldn't have done that. If I were the Israelites and I had just been redeemed, gone through the rift, of course I wouldn't have done that. If I was the Corinthians, come on. I feel like every week I'm just going, come on. Wisdom says... 
Don't presume upon your position. A lot of grace has been given to you. But look back. Everyone's got blinders. Everyone's got blind spots. Before we get to Paul's encouragement, because this text actually is encouragement, support. He's, he's trying to rebuff and help the Corinthians in their life under grace. There are a number of things that this text teaches us about our Bibles, which unfortunately we're going to have to kind of go through quickly at a fast pace. It teaches us a lot about theology and, and the way we synthesize the Old and New Testaments. And I think there's a few things we need to acknowledge before we dive into the meat of this text. Here's a few of them, what this text assumes. Look at these lines together. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers... It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? First, as we've seen so many times, he's reminding the Corinthians that they are, in fact, brothers, right? I think our patience for them and thoughts of them, we probably question people of their salvation over a lot less than the way they're living. But he calls them brothers. They have been given the grace of Christ. And then he calls them to pay attention to their fathers, the Israelites. Why is that unique? It's because the Corinthians were Gentiles. Israel... Um, had all the elements, excuse me, of a church, right? The Israel of the Old Testament is the forefathers. They are the forefathers of the church that Paul is preaching to. Look at verse number two. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is, all of the Israelites were set apart in covenant with Yahweh. Paul likens the crossing of the Red Sea as a baptism, a setting apart, and a washing of God's people. They are set apart, sort of um, uh, under this mediator of Moses, they are baptized into the covenant. The Israelites had baptism just like the Corinthians did. And both sets of covenant people must stay alert no matter their covenant status. So that's kind of the point of why he mentions it. One, brothers in Corinth, just because you have the communion table, just because you think you've gone beyond circumcision, and just because you think you have baptism, and just because you think you have Paul or Paulus, pay attention. Because this is a story that's as old as time even those who had baptism before you, and they did, fell prey to this trap. Even they, who had the grace of God to come out of Egyptian slavery, even the the fount, sort of, of our inheritance. Pay attention. Verse number 3 and 4, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank uh, from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And this refers to the manna and the water that was supplied to the Israelites that they ate and drank in the wilderness. Their sustenance, all while being delivered, was by the grace of God. And the name of the grace, listen to this, the name of that grace that was given for provision to the Israelites, Paul interprets the scriptures. This is a good explanation on scripture interpreting scripture and the sufficiency of scripture. He says the name of that provision to those people was not just manna. The name of that provision is not just water from the rock. The name of the grace that was coming to them is Christ. 
if they were eating and partaking by faith, well, then the name, though it was a mystery to them, the name of what they were partaking in is Christ. Christ was their provision. It's remarkable. So Paul's argument is, is this, that the Corinthians aren't really in all of that unique of a spot. It's all been there before, if they have eyes to see it. God pours out his grace and salvation, and if they aren't careful, this liberty will give way to license, and when fully formed, condemnation. It's a word to those who've received grace. So you've received grace in this room? Yeah, it's us too. How holy is God? What, what, you know, what big a deal is this after all? Well, how about this? Paul reminds them, God was not pleased with the Israelites. He had delivered them, right? The Passover generation, he had pulled them out. He had, uh, think about this, he had provided them for, with shade by day and warmth and fire by night and food and water and his presence and his spirit is dwelling among them and they're grumbling and they're complaining and they're a miserable lot and God actually poured out his wrath upon them and do you know how many made it into the promised land? Two. Joshua and Caleb. It's a story that Paul knew well, and he wanted the Corinthians to know it. Guys, grace can come to you, even as a church. And you can presume upon that grace. And this is no new story. This is, this is common to mankind. This is something you need to pay attention to, because as a church, they were presuming upon the grace of God. They were letting their license and freedom lean out into license sexually and with um, hierarchy and with mockery of authority. They even mocked Paul's authority. But he says in verse 6 and verse 11, these things were written for your instruction as an example. That is to say, these things are not written for your condemnation, brothers. They're, They're warnings. This is our story. And so, Pay attention to the grace. You are inheritors of the grace of God. And you do stand in this long line. And you you have inherited uh, the Lord's Supper, God's provisional grace to you. You have inherited baptism. You've been set apart and washed. But you've also inherited the same problems that came to our forefathers. Deal with them differently. Don't go down the same road. See these brothers as a warning. Look and live. Look and live. So what exactly were these sins that were common to man? What is it that Paul reminds the Corinthians of from their forefathers? Well, he names explicitly four things. Four things that I think properly overlap between the Corinthian congregation and are drawn up from examples of the wilderness generation. First one he names is idolatry. Idolatry. Brothers, don't Turn yourselves over to idolatry. Now, in the Corinthian congregation, there, there would have been ease of doing so with temples and, and literal icons that they could have crafted. But idolatry even goes farther beyond that. Idolatry in its core is um, attempting to get from a finite thing that which only the infinite can supply. 
But ultimately, in a, in a nutshell, idolatry is worshiping something other than the one true God. Giving ultimate value and ascription to that thing. One of the remarkable things about the golden calf incident is that they had just been sort of liberated. And the text says that they were trying to honor Yahweh through the means of this golden calf. And then they took upon themselves the eating, the drinking, and the playing, so the, kind of the, the, the sexual ex- expression of that, as they, they were trying to worship Yahweh through this other means. In other words, they were taking Yahweh and making him in their image what he wanted them to be, or what they wanted him to be, and said, well, we're fine with Yahweh. He can be our deliverer all day long, but he is going to fit pigeonholed into an image that I have of him, and then all of my expressions and and gratitude, sure, they can be under his name and his banner, but he is going to act and think and be exactly how I have him in my imagining, and God says, no. You will worship me on my terms. We've already said it multiple times this morning. We must not forget that God is holy. We come to him on his terms and he will not be mocked. We must live by his self-revelation and not by our assumptions. Now, why is that important? Because most of us, even in our theological interpretations, are absolutely miserable. We can presume upon God's grace. We're glad he's given it but ultimately find him, he's difficult and he's not going to provide and he's not there in giving comfort. Talked about this in our Sunday school lesson with Martin Luther. He, he sold his heart to God, but he just lived under his thumb and we have these thoughts and conceptions about God and we've crafted these narratives about him and so we've made him like the generation who made a calf into an image that we have formed and sometimes that gives us freedom because we like the way this God is and sometimes this this tangle of what we've made is frustrating and it's not very big. And God says, well, stop it. And Paul tells the Corinthians, brother, stop it. Don't fall into idolatry. Look at God for who he is. Because who he is, that makes a Christian. That makes a Christian with a light heart because all grace has come from God. From a God whose self-revelation on Mount Sinai is that I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I wouldn't have come up with that. He bends down to wash feet, dies on a cross, risen from the third day, sits at the right hand of the Father, is our mediator at all times, perfect mediator. Worship God on his terms. All of our just our Christian vitality will just come alive if we would see God on his terms. The mistaken uh, frustrations that we have with God come from misconceptions of who he is, things we've often made up. So idolatry, idolatry presumes upon God's grace by altering his identity. Idolatry presumes upon God's grace by I altering his identity, making him to be something that he's not. We must worship the one true God, and he alone has right to identify himself. The second thing that Paul encourages the Corinthians not to presume upon 
He says, brothers, do not fall into sexual immorality as some of them did. All of those uh, in this list stem from presumption and pride, sure. And in a way, they also spring from mistrust. Lust is unique in that it looks outside of God for satisfaction. But lust is primarily aimed at doing. It, it needs to be satisfied. It is an itch that needs to be scratched. It burns for fulfillment. And where it finds that fulfillment is outside of God or God's hand for provision. Lust does not trust that God is big enough for the things that we desire. God is not big enough for my desires. They're too great. And they're so present that I've got to just take it, in my, take it into my own hands, take matters in my own hands, because God can't be here. He's waiting too long, and he's not big enough to satisfy me. So lust presumes upon God's holiness. And we think that God is not holy, that he can be mocked. But those who receive grace can also slip in to presume upon, okay, God, you're, you're holy, but I also need this. And that's got to be okay. Because the pressure's too much. And I don't know if you're big enough to handle it. And so lust presumes upon God's holiness. Third, says, brothers, Some of them put God to the test in the wilderness. They doubted. In the wilderness, people began to test God. He had provided for them. They had seen it through the plagues. They had seen it through the splitting of the sea. They had seen it through deliverance. God had wiped out the whole army of Pharaoh. God had provided for them, and yet they still put God to the test. Is he really who he says he is? Will he really provide for us? Go ahead and smack that rock. Let's see if we can get some more water out of him. They had countless provisions before them, but their hearts had grown hard. They dealt with God in mistrust, and they asked for God to continually prove himself. So one of the things about doubt for the Corinthians, for the Israelites before them and for us, is that it presumes upon God's power. We talked a little bit in Sunday school about faith and how faith feels sort of discouraging at times because it feels like this tiny thread that's holding us on to God, that our salvation is just minuscule. And so a doubt in that presents itself in presumption upon God's power. God, are you... You actually saved me? Or actually, are you actually here to do anything about the circumstances in my life? This leads to the last one. It's discontent. The Israelites were dissatisfied with their food and their drink. They wanted something different, a change of menu. And yet God covered them with shade by day and warmth by night, delivering them from slavery and providing them with food and drink, and yet they still grumbled. Discontentment doesn't like what God has given and deals with God in mistrust. Discontent presumes upon God's provision. God, I I just don't like what you've given me. 
All these things, we could go down a list of things all day long, but pay attention of why Paul is giving these to them. He's saying, brothers, these are the common ones that are common to all mankind. Don't get caught up in these. Because the Israelites did and they didn't make it. And if you're in the church and God has given you grace, do not deal with God in discontentment which is such an easy one to do. I don't like where I'm at in life. I don't like what you've given me. I especially don't like what you have not given me. And God, you have made my life miserable if you'll just hear my prayers and provide for me. And discontent presumes upon God's provision. But Paul takes all these things and he wants to build. He doesn't want to tear down. He wants to build. The whole premise of this is that you have been laid on the foundation of Christ. I am here to put on bricks of, uh, of, of things that will last the, the test, not wood, hay, and stubble. So let me build. And he says, brothers, what do you do with all the grace? Well, it looks like you're presuming upon it quite a bit. So how do you fight this? Look at verses 12 through 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. But brothers, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Take heed lest you fall. Think of the image that we've cast so many times already this morning of a grumbling, lusting, doubting, discontent conglomerate of people who have just been slathered, smothered, and covered in the grace of God. We sort of almost laugh when we read their story. Just how thick can you be? Think of the Corinthian church that we've just preached about for so many weeks in a row. And, and God, we're going, come on, brothers. You know, get it together. If I was there, surely I wouldn't be like that. And the image of how they're perceived has got to be an important one in our mind that, that God doesn't deliver his, his grace to a people. It's foolish for the world to observe them and go, look at, they're just as miserable, just as complaining, just as full of lust, just full of grumbling and discontent. He takes them in their congregation and says, brother, you... These precise things that you're dealing with are the very means for illuminating who God is to the world. Let me say that again. The, the precise things that you're dealing with that are so difficult amongst your congregation that do need to be repented of are the precise areas that you need to rejoice in and lean into because God has given you so much grace that you shine so remarkably different in the world. So instead of lust, you're walking in holiness. Instead of discontentment, you're walking in contentment. Instead of doubt, you're walking in faith and trust. Instead of testing God, you're delighting in God and resting God. What a flip of view to see that we are not in this scenario that is so bound tight that we're, 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 we can't escape it. God is faithful. There's no temptation that's coming to you that's so unique. Listen to this. That's so unique that you have to throw your hands up and say, God, there's no way I can make it through this. My circumstances are so uh, specific that there's no way I can make it through. 
Well, Paul says, well, it wasn't so unique for the Israelites. That was pretty unique. You guys are a unique congregation, but the same thing's coming to you. Brothers, it's not a matter of how unique you think your scenario is or where God has placed you or what you have or what you don't have or what you feel. God is faithful. And that very circumstance is the circumstance that is used to either highlight our frailty and sin, hypocrisy, or God uses it as a precise means. I mean, Christians should see it and go, yes, I mean, this is where we glorify God. I'm discontent. I hate this scenario, but this is, a, this is where I shine. This is where my testimony is not just for me, private insurance for salvation. This is where I stand on the sufficiency of God. Yes, I will trust him. Yes, I will believe him. I love that he gives this very sharp and clear truth that God is not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can handle. That is not something that you can come and and say to the pastor, well, the pastor was just unbearable. The truth is, is that God tests those whom he loves. The word here for temptation here is actually the word for test, for reproving, for growing. Those who are tempted are tested. God chastises and reproves and grows those whom he loves. And your response to that truth shows a lot about your maturity. Well, yes, but can he just love me a little less? That would be really nice. But to understand that God loves you and God tests you, God reproves you, he's maturing you, growing you, building what is our faith? What is it? He's building your faith. What is it? Is it something for you? Something for you to have? To grow just for your personal edification? No. What is faith? It's trust in him. He's growing the bond that attaches us to him so that when discontent and when doubting and when lust comes, we're further knitted to him. We are secure in Christ. He provides a way of escape that we may endure. Our situation is never hopeless. And your emotions can totally betray you here. Your emotions can totally betray you. If you can feel without hope and in unique circumstances and all alone. But in Paul's wisdom, he says, plop yourself back down into the narrative of Scripture. It's a tale as old as time. Don't presume upon God's grace. He is not a God to be mocked. He is a God to be trusted. Hold on tight. Hold on tight, brothers. There are those who didn't, and they didn't make it. They presumed upon God's grace. Hold on tight. Reminded me of, in Pilgrim's Progress, the time when uh, Pilgrim and Hopeful get captured into the Castle of Doubt by the Giant of Despair. Do you all know this? Red Pilgrim's Progress. So they had tried to take a shortcut, kind of lean on their own way to navigate the path. They get off the path, and the Giant of Despair comes, and he, he takes them, and he, he, I mean, he brutally roughs them up and throws them in prison and starves them and beats them. And they're in the, the Castle of Doubt. They begin to think, well, God's not going to love us anymore. We took this shortcut. We totally blew it and messed up. And and then now there's the, the giant of despair. And then 
Christian remembers something. And he says, what a fool am I. Thus, to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk out at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that I will, and I'm persuaded, will open any lock in Doubting Castle. And so he did. He took out the promises of God, and they, they walked right out of there. How can anybody make it through the wilderness? They had the rock, and the rock was Christ. But they presumed upon the holiness of God. Trusted in themselves, doubted, lusted, and many of them didn't make it. How do you make it in Corinth? You have the rock, which is Christ. One of the wonderful things about looking at the Gospels is seeing Jesus take the 40 days in the wilderness, sort of recapitulating the 40 years of wilderness wandering, being tempted and tested in the same ways. And instead of falling prey to those, Jesus is, uh, fulfills the test. Christ is our rock. And Paul is pushing the Corinthians more and more. Brothers, even in grace, don't let go of Christ. Because even in grace, you can feel that your, your grip loosens on him because you have all of this freedom that turns into license. And that license turns into a God of your imagining and a God who can be mocked and a God who isn't holy. How do we make it in Dunwoody? We look to Christ with all of our freedom, with all the grace in the church covenant of grace. What do we do with all the grace that we have? We use it as fuel to hold on to Christ even more. Our verse for this quarter is a good reminder of such way we should react with the grace that we've received. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this is what it does, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting. Waiting. What is that? It's anticipating, holding on, worshiping, not letting go, not relaxing, but waiting, hopeful waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ may and will, listen to this, put you to the test. Christ may and will put you to the test. He is building a people for himself, but we may not put him to the test. Hold on. He is holding on to you. Your circumstances, though difficult, we pray about them often, are not so unique that your hands are bound. May your eyes be fixed on Christ, who will provide for you, who is the giver of grace and has more to spare. He's giving it every morning in new mercies. 
May that cause us to be a people of his own possession, more zealous for good works and the glory of his name.